0: Tonight we look at Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 in a passage that I'm entitling So Great a Salvation. In chapter 2 verse 1 it says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and Gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And for most of you in your Bible, that statement ends with a question mark. Remember, the writer of Hebrews has been arguing that Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior to all other prophets. And Jesus is superior in his person and in his message, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Jesus is better than angels in chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. And now the author will pause. He's pausing in his argument. And he's going to give us an exhortation. Some of us might even think about this as a warning. What is the difference between a warning and an exhortation? The the two have an equivalency, particularly when whatever it is that's being asked of you and being encouraged of you is to motivate you to listen and respond. And so this warning, this exhortation will become the first of five warnings In the book of Hebrews, the writer warns the the, the reader not to drift away from the word of God, which we just read in verses 1 through 4. Later, the writer will exhort the reader not to doubt the word in chapter 3, verses 7, all the way to chapter 4, verse 13. Or number three, to lose our enthusiasm or grow dull towards the word in chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 20. That includes exhortations not to Number four, despise the word, chapter 10, verse 26 through 39, or disobey the word in chapter 12, verses 14 through 19. But as you hear about the warnings and you hear about the exhortations that are given throughout the book of Hebrews, don't drift away from the Bible, don't doubt the Bible, don't lose your enthusiasm about the Bible. Don't despise the Word of God. Don't disobey the Word of God. I'm hoping that you're beginning to see the centrality of the message and it all focuses around the revelation of God that's given in your Bible that you can trust. You can open up your Bible and you can allow it to speak to you. And this becomes important. This becomes important to each and every person who has ever simply said, Lord, I need to hear from you. I need to hear your voice. I need you to speak to me. And you experience silence. And then you get discouraged. And you get frustrated because you haven't opened up your Bible and allowed it to speak to you. God, this is the point of Hebrews. God isn't silent. He continues to speak. Over and over again, people have been troubled by God's silence. And here is what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, that Jesus has broken the silence and the Bible is willing to speak to our circumstance. So we must not neglect God's word. The writer, think about what's going on. The writer is speaking to Christians, to Jewish people who have embraced the Jewish Messiah and the writer is pleading with them to to not stop short of God's best life. Now, even Joel Osteen, if he heard me say, don't stop short of God's best life, he would go, preach it, preach it, brother. But the best life, That the writer of Hebrews is talking about isn't a life of personal prosperity that's never marred by suffering or difficulty or challenge. What the writer of Hebrews is going to be talking about is a life of holiness and a life of service and a life of fruit bearing. Because the writer of Hebrews believes that a life of holiness and and a life of fruit-bearing and a life of service is going to bring about maturation. Jesus has provided us everything by his grace. And as he makes that provision, the expectation really is spiritual maturity. And so the strong warning right in the middle of this declaration about Jesus. Don't drift away from God's word. Verse 1, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Lest we drift away. It's a strong command. Don't drift from God's message of truth. Don't drift from Jesus. Remember, therefore, it's in light of what everything that we've already been learning in chapter 1. Therefore, chapter 1, God has spoken us to us by the Lord Jesus, verse 1. Jesus made the universe, verse 2. He maintains the universe, verse 3. Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, verse 3. Jesus died to cleanse us from our sins, verse 3. The things we have heard is the message of the gospel. The things we have heard is the message of Salvation. And so the writer is going to argue, don't drift away. Why? Because of the greatness of the God who has given you salvation. Because of the greatness of the God and the greatness of his gift. That's what he's saying. And the word heed, by the way, translates a Greek word prosikin it means pay close attention pay particular attention as Charles Stanley is fond of saying in Mississippi now listen up because what I'm about to say is important that's what he does when he wants you to pay particular attention We pay close attention to what? To the gospel of salvation. It's the imperative. The Lord God has spoken to us in Jesus. Salvation has been offered. We've been chosen, adopted, accepted in the beloved. We can live peacefully, soberly with joy. We can experience liberation from bondage. We can live triumphantly. We can live abundantly. So what does it mean? What does it mean to drift away or slip away from the gospel and from salvation? The word drift, para, rumin. It's a word that in the ancient world meant to flow past, to glide by. In the ancient world, you would use this word to describe the act whereby... Have you ever had a piece of jewelry or a ring that was a little bit too big for your finger and then it just sort of slipped off your finger? That would be the word that they would use here. It would be like you have something that's just a little bit too 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 large, but yet you just keep it on your hand and it just sort of slips off. Ladies, you might have had an earring that you didn't even know, it just sort of disappeared on you. Guys, uh it's usually laundry and it's usually a sock, and it usually disappears into the vortex of the dryer, never to be seen ever again. It was also used to describe a memory that would begin to fade. It would describe something that you used to know and that you used to remember, but because you haven't thought about it in a very long time, it begins to slip your mind. It would also be used to describe a container that contained liquid, whether it was a wine vessel or a water vessel, and it had a small, small leak, and all of a sudden the content of the vessel began to slip away or leak out. William Barclay says it is regularly used of something which has carelessly or thoughtlessly been allowed to slip and then become lost. The picture is the picture of a ship in a harbor which has been allowed to drift or slip past I was never really a surfer, and I was really never a very good surfer. But every once in a while, I would get on that board, and I would paddle out... And if you've ever been to the beach and you've you know, been on a board or you've been on a, on some sort of flotation device and you just start enjoying the water and you just start enjoying the sun and you just sort of start to doze just a little bit, your mind begins to wander and pretty soon the current is taking you further and further from the place where you began. You might have a marker like, like a lifeguard station or a pier and all of a sudden you find yourself going further and further and further away from from the marker. And that's part of what's happening. The the ocean's currents lull you into a place where you simply allow the current to take you where it wants to go. And it becomes a type and a a picture of the Christian life where, where you didn't really mean for the current culture to cause you to Not think about Jesus or not think about God or not think about salvation or not think about the principles and the worldview of Christianity. It usually doesn't begin with outright rebellion. It doesn't usually begin with outright disobedience. It usually doesn't mean that you're going to go to some bar and you're going to do margarita tequila chasers and you go, you know what, I've been going to church and I've been praying and I've been reading my Bible, but now I'm going to go get drunk. Or I'm going to go get high. Or I'm going to go do this. Or I'm going to do that. Usually it doesn't begin with some sort of outright rebellion. It usually begins with, I'm not going to get up and I'm just not going to pray. I'm going to sleep in. And then you do it over Again and over again, and you decide that, that you can neglect reading your Bible and you can neglect going to church and you can neglect friendship and fellowship, and you just sort of let it go and you let it go and you let it go, and it might have begun with lethargy and apathy and carelessness and inattentiveness. And so the author is warning us to anchor our lives in the truth that is found in the gospel and in the person of Jesus. And this is why when you anchor yourself in the gospel and in the truth of Jesus every single day, you find yourself in a situation where you're hearing from the Lord and listening to the Lord and obeying the Lord. Again, Barclay writes, quote, For most of us, the threat of life is not so much that we should plunge into disaster, but that we should drift into sin. There are few people who deliberately and in a moment turn their backs on God. But there are many who day by day drift farther and farther from Him. There are not many who in a a moment of time commit some disastrous sin. There are many who bit by bit And almost imperceptibly involve themselves in some situation. And they suddenly awake to find their life ruined. Or they find that they have broken somebody else's heart. We would do well to be continually on the alert against the peril of the drifting life, unquote, he writes. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 6, the prophet Jeremiah said, You've forsaken me, says the Lord. You've gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I'm weary of relenting. And I will winnow them. With a winnowing fan in the gates of the land, I will bereave them of their children. I will destroy my people since they did not return from their ways. In the Old Testament, that might sound harsh. But remember, when when the Lord says, you have forsaken me, says the Lord, you've gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you. It didn't come All at once. The judgment didn't come all at once. But there was a repeated. There was a repeated. There was a repeated invitation. It doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to go bad. Guess what? You can turn from your sin. You can turn to the Lord. You can turn from your sin. You can turn to the Lord. In the Old Testament, the Lord didn't simply say, You haven't done what I've told you to do. Rather, he says... You've forsaken me. It wasn't about going to church. It wasn't even about offering the sacrifice. It wasn't even about reading the law. Because remember what going to the temple or Offering the sacrifice or looking at the scroll and doing what it says in Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. Meditate on the word of God day and night. Speak it with your mouth. Think about it during the day. Think about it during the night. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. We're in danger of drifting away from Jesus and we're in danger of drifting away from the gospel when the currents of the modern life begin to undermine and sweep you in a direction and sometimes those currents are the things that happen in our life and the sicknesses or or the setbacks that we experience or the economic distress or relational failure and then all of, of a sudden we find ourselves in a cultural riptide and we are taken under because we've let go of the anchor. You've forsaken me. And by the way, what is the shore that's farthest away from Christ? The shore that's farthest away from Christ is the one that says... Where's Jesus? Where's his love? Where's his sacrifice? You know, our neglect can become, at first, apathy and indifference. But I think it continues. And it can become depraved indifference. Some of you know that word because you watch CSI. Or you watch crime shows on TV and you go, I know what depraved indifference is. Depraved indifference is when you see something that is so obviously wrong and you disregard it. Depraved indifference is is if you're at Walmart. And you see a baby inside of a car strapped to a seat and it's a hundred degrees outside, and you look around for the mom, and you now then park yourself right next to the to the to the to the car, and five minutes goes by and ten minutes go by, and fifteen minutes go by and twenty minutes go by, and you start to panic. Because you realize. That the child is in trouble, but can you imagine? Here's what happens if at the end of 30 minutes you go, Well, I'm just gonna let this be somebody else's problem. That's depraved indifference. That's to know, meditate, consider that something has gone terribly wrong. We have enormous privileges in Jesus, we have a wonderful salvation in Jesus. We have a life-changing gospel in Jesus and then to simply float past his love, his grace, his invitation of love and grace, his offer of forgiveness and hope. What it will do is that's the current that will wash you up on the shore of judgment. Can you imagine all of your family and friends who are going to one day wake up in eternity and they're going to find themselves not on the heavenly shore. Not on the place of the righteous dead. Pay attention. Stay alert. John Phillips recounts his adventure as a young officer in the British Army serving in the Royal Engineer Corps during World War II. I thought of his story because I got to visit... uh, Ken Ken White today Ken is 92 and it looks like today tomorrow sometime this week he he's going to heaven Ken White was in World War II and Ken White was a part of the 10th Mountain Division Ken White was one of those guys in World War II who went overseas and who goes to Germany and who becomes a part of our fighting team, who goes into Nazi concentration camps and liberates them. You see, you may not even know it, but sitting right next to you or behind you or when you show up at church, you see that, that what looks like this frail, white, shock white hair, and you're looking into the face of a hero. John Phillips was in the British Army, and he served in the Royal Engineer Corps, and he talks about a training exercise um, of learning to diffuse booby-trapped minds. They were given field exercises, and and John Phillips talks about sometimes they would be given every kind of booby-trap that you can imagine, and they were They were instructed on how to disassemble it. And in order to make it more real, they would put an explosive cap in the booby trap. Not so that you would blow up, but it would be like a loud firecracker. And when that firecracker went off, you could hear the the sergeant major say, you're dead. You just died. He writes, if you came across a live booby trap, it was a matter of life or death. He writes, we watched every move the instructor made. We studied every illustration. We mastered the mechanics of every known type of booby trap. We asked urgent questions about aspects of the training that we didn't understand because our lives depended on it. Indolence and carelessness would have been the height of folly. But a lot of people don't go to Bible study that way. They don't open their Bible that way. They don't think about heaven and hell that way. They don't, they don't look at it and go, what I'm reading about and what I'm considering right at this very moment, I, I should want to know down to the last details. And so the writer says, a strong reason Judge This is the strong reason why, judgment under the law in verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and dos- disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape? if we neglect so great a salvation. When he says, for if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, the expression, the word spoken through angels is a reference, remember, to the messengers who came from heaven, who delivered God's word. This is a picture of heavenly angels bringing the communication to Moses and the rest of the prophets. It really is a specific reference to the law of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, verse 11. Angelic beings serving as the mediators between God and man. Angelic supernatural beings serving as the intermediators. And the Old Testament speaks of myriads and myriads of angels present at the giving of the law in Deuteronomy 33, 2. Psalm sixty-eight, seventeen. The writer is basically saying, remember, these are Jews. These are Jewish people. These are Jewish people who understood and recognized what their own Bible had to say about the way God communicated. And they would have understood that the testimony and the instruction were valid and true. That every command was real and every punishment certain. Judgment under the law was strict. Every transgression, every disobedience had its appropriate punishment. If a person broke the law, that person was judged and condemned and bore the punishment that was laid out by the law. Jewish people understand the statement, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. By the way, look what it says for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience, the word transgression, para, basis, every transgression means to step aside. It's a word that is used to describe crossing a line, it meant to go against what the law says knowingly, willfully to violate the law's command so what is that how is that different transgression parabasis and disobedience parakoe disobedience parakoe means to neglect to refuse or fail to obey god's law the picture is if a person deliberately rejected god's law he was sentenced to die And the punishment was irrevocable. It's a picture of the person who said, I know what I'm not supposed to do. And I'm going to do what I'm not supposed to do. And I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care about what the revelation says. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. In Numbers chapter 15 verse 30. It says this. But the person who does anything presumptuously whether he is native-born or a stranger. That one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people. Numbers 15.30. What does that mean? It means no propitiatory offering. You can't go, and you can't offer A grain offering. You can't go and offer a burnt offering. There was a series of offerings that were given in the book of Leviticus. I should have marked it. There was a burnt offering. And there was a grain offering. And there was a peace offering. And there was a sin offering. And there was a trespass offering. But neither burnt offering, nor grain offering, nor peace offering, nor sin offering, nor trespass offering would satisfy this kind of crime. In Numbers 15.30 when it says, but the person who does something presumptuously. Here, in the Hebrew language, it was a word to describe literally the person with the high hand. The person with the high hand is something that you will recognize. Have you ever seen a child clench their fist and wave it in the air? That's the picture here. It's the person who clenches their fist. This is the finger pointer who points into heaven and says, God, I'm just going to give you a little piece of my mind. You want this? Well, I'll just give you what's for it. And that's... What he's talking about. The high hand, the clenched fist in defiance of God and his commands. This is the person who says, I don't care what the Bible says. And I don't care what the Bible commands. I'm going to do what I want to do. Jeremiah twenty-one fourteen says, but I will punish you. I'll punish you. According to the fruit of your doings, saith the Lord. I'll kindle a fire in the forest thereof. And it shall devour all things round about it. The history of the Jews, the history of the Jews, the history of the Jews is really a history of neglect and disobedience and rebellion and sin. The history of the Jews is the revelation of God and the disobedience of the people, the revelation of God and the disobedience of the people, the revelation of God and the disobedience of the people. And the Hebrew people, the Hebrew people, the Hebrew people would feel the crushing weight of sometimes slow, And sometimes swift judgment. But whether the judgment was slow or whether the judgment was swift, the judgment would come. And so the writer of Hebrews is basically saying if God gave promises and commands through the angels and kept his word, How shall we escape? Look at verse 3. How shall we escape? How shall we escape? How shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? When he's asking the question, how shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Everybody reading this book is going to understand that the answer is we can't. We can't. There is no escape. The writer has given a strong reason to stay anchored. Anchored in Jesus. Anchored in salvation. The consequences are catastrophic. And now he adds another stronger reason. Judgment under Jesus is much more severe than judgment under the law. That should come as a shock to most of you. What? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Judgment under Jesus is much more severe than judgment under the law. What are you talking about? Well, look at the reasons that the author himself provides. Salvation is great. Salvation is deliverance. God has given us a way of escape. From our sin and our circumstances. And the message was delivered by Jesus himself. And the message has been experienced and attested to by so many people. And those are the three reasons he gives. He's giving this is the reason why. It's because salvation is great. And the message was given by Jesus himself. And the message has been experienced and found to be true by those who have experienced his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. The salvation which was at first preached by Jesus and then confirmed by the apostles. Which Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2 verse 3. And he says, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Do you despise the riches of his forbearance and his long suffering knowing that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? The the writer is making the argument that if God spoke in times past through the prophets and gave the law to Moses. But he has in these last days spoken to us by Jesus. And the message that Jesus has given is. I love you. And I'm willing to forgive you. And I'm willing to forgive the Unforgivable. I'm willing to be a sacrifice where no Old Testament sacrifice would satisfy the rebellion and the disobedience that you've walked in. And imagine a person says, I don't want that. I don't want that. Tell me again what it is that you want. Why, I want to stand in front of God on my own. On the basis of every thought that I've ever thought and every word that I've ever spoken and every deed that I've ever done. Now you reread it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape? Do you think that the writer is suggesting that there is a way of escape? No. Do you think he's suggesting that there might be Road number two or road number three. He basically says, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. The writer testifies that Jesus spoke to the apostles and the apostles told the truth about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is saying the apostles... Jesus spoke to the apostles, and the apostles spoke to us, and that the apostles told us the truth about Jesus. For three and a half years, the followers of Jesus watched him talked with him, ate with him, slept with him, and remembered his his words and his deeds. They walked the dusty roads of Galilee. They heard his words. They saw his signs. They watched him die. They were eyewitnesses of his very real resurrection. And Peter refers to these things in Acts chapter 1 verse 3 when he gives a speech that these are infallible proofs in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16 Peter says we have not cunningly we have not followed cunningly devised fables John wrote that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen literally with our real eyes which we have looked upon that means in the in the original language in 1 John chapter 1 it, it means we took a good long hard Look until the full significance of what we saw. We really began to understand. Our hands have handled concerning the word of life. For this life was manifested and we have seen it and we bear witness to it. Whereunto we have eternal life which is with the Father and which was manifested to us. That's the consistent testimony of the people who walked with him. And talked with him. And loved him. And so what's the fate? What's, what's the fate for those who neglect the gospel? What's the fate of the person who says... The satisfying solution to the problem of my sin has to be found somewhere else. William MacDonald writes The law tells men what they must do, the gospel tells men what God has done. By the law is the knowledge of sin. By the gospel is the knowledge of salvation. That's why we talk about it. That's why we repeat it over and over again. Neglecting that salvation is far greater than the transgression and the disobedience to the law. Neglecting that salvation is way worse The law was given by God through angels to Moses. Salvation is given by God through Jesus himself. Jesus comes. Remember the parable that he gives about the son who comes and the the people who wanted the vineyard. They were so angry that they said, this is the heir, let's come and let's take him and let's kill him. we're in danger of neglecting so great a salvation when we fail to appreciate or believe just how lost we are this is this is how we we run the risk we run the risk the moment that you believe The tide and the current and the conversation of the world in which you live where people say to you, your sin doesn't really matter. Your sin, it really isn't that important. It doesn't matter. Sin is not that big of a deal. I had a person on my radio program who just simply said, why doesn't God just forgive? Why doesn't he just let it go? Why doesn't he just forgive everybody and just let it go? And I said, I I, I think you don't understand the gravity of sin and you don't understand the gravity of the person who's offended. And I tried to help him understand. I said, imagine if if you slapped me. What might be the consequences? Well, I might get charged with assault and I might be brought up on charges. What would happen if you went down to the governor's mansion and you slapped the governor? Well, I think people might take that really a, a little more seriously. What would happen if somehow you breached the security at the White House and you attempted to assault the president? And she said, the whole world would ex- explode in, in, in applause. I go, that, I know that might be true, but you're missing the point of my analogy. You're missing the point. The point of the analogy is if you assault the president of the United States, you're assaulting his office and you're assaulting the dignity of the office. Is it possible that secret service agents might just kill you? Well, well, yeah. And I said, imagine if you could walk up to God and spit in his face and slap him. How serious is it? How serious of a crime is it to offend a self-existent being who is the picture of holiness and grandeur, who is the uncreated creator, who created the heavens and the earth? Some of you are old enough To remember the, the days when it wasn't so politically correct. What would have happened? And you don't have to tell me who you are, and you don't even have to raise your hand, but do you remember what would have happened if you raised your hand to your mother? Can you imagine hitting your mother or slapping her, what the consequences would be? And then you absolutely, positively have no idea just how problematic sin is. Millions, millions, millions of people, billions of people fail to appreciate or believe just how lost that they are apart from the gospel, apart from Christ and And why are they lost? Because of sin. Why are they lost? Because they've rejected the biblical revelation and God's description of man's rebellion. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth forth His handiwork in Psalm 19. The Bible says that God has left a permanent impression on every single people who shows up on the planet earth. Who should come to the conclusion, wow, if there's a God who created the heavens and the earth, he must be a pretty powerful. God. And in the book of Romans, it says, nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good, and he gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. That's actually Acts chapter 14, verse 17. In Romans 1, 19, it says, Because that which would have been known of God is made manifest in them, for God showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even as eternal power and Godhead. And here's Paul's writing, so that they are without excuse. But don't let the Bible stop you they'll still come up with an excuse. My sin isn't really that bad. And God doesn't really care. And the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus doesn't really matter. And so we want to excuse our sin. Or we want a way to make the sin go away apart from God and apart from Christ and apart from from the gospel. And so we do what some cults do, like Hinduism. Or Christian science. Or Buddhism. In Hinduism, you believe in Maya. That means that all of existence is simply an illusion. So that your very existence is an illusion. And suffering is an illusion. And sin is an illusion. And it isn't really there. It doesn't really exist. In Christian science... They believe that sin is an illusion and that there really is no such thing as sin. All there is is wrong thinking about yourself. I remember having a conversation with an elderly lady who embraced Christian science and she said Christ, she said that sin was an illusion and I said forgive me ma'am. I don't mean to be rude. But will you do me a favor? Will you walk with me to that mirror? And she walked with me to the mirror. And I said, Look long and hard into that mirror. I said, Do you look the same as you did when you were 19 years old? And she burst into tears because she knew that the mirror was telling the truth, that time and sin had begun to take a toll on her life, that you can lie and pretend and wish to God that sin weren't real. And there are people who may even concede that it's real and that it is even, even horrible, but it's not enough to sentence you to judgment and hell. And the Bible says we're lost because our own conscience tells us that we're lost. And the world tells us that we're lost. And so the simple answer to the question. How shall we escape if we disregard so great a salvation? As we can't. And the writer includes himself. Look, look at the text again. How shall we? We escape. He doesn't exclude himself or exonerate himself. The person who's heard the gospel and neglects the gospel and rejects the gospel is without excuse. The picture is the picture of a person who rudely and willfully ignores a gracious invitation to a feast. Do you remember the story in Matthew chapter 22 where the Lord gives the parable of a wonderful wedding and he invites everyone to come and he invites them and a particular person uh, gives all kinds of excuses for not coming. I have to go in the field or I have to do this or I have to do that. And then the Lord says, go out into the highways and byways. Beat the bushes. Invite the lame, the leper, the least, and the lost. Invite them to come. It's used of Timothy's obligation not to neglect the exercising of his spiritual gift. In in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. The message of the gospel offers the only escape. From God's righteousness and certain judgment. Jesus said. I'm the door. Jesus said everyone who came before me is a thief and a robber. In John 14 Jesus said I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to to the father except by me. In the New Testament, the open door is the only door. And there's the rub. And there's the rub. Because the person who hears the message of hope and says, I want another door. What kind of a door do you want? I want a less demanding door. Tell me what you mean. I want a door that won't require me... To turn from my sin. And embrace Jesus. I want a door that will allow me to continue in sin. I want a door that will allow me to continue in disobedience and rebellion. I want a door that is a happy door. And I want a door that is a problem-free door. And I want a door where suffering isn't a part of my life. And John Dyer writes, quote, A person may go to heaven without health and without riches and without honors and without learning and without friends. But he can never go to heaven without Christ. And so there's an acrostic that spells out salvation sin, alienation, lifelessness, vileness, aversion, thoughtlessness, independence, obstinacy, neglectfulness. That's why we need salvation. And so, what are we saved to? Sanctification, S. Adoption, A. Life eternal, L. Virtue, acceptance, thoughtfulness, inness, that means we're in Christ. Obedience and, and nobleness. In verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Think about what you just read. The command, don't drift from God's message, verse 1. Don't disobey God's message of truth, verse 2. The message of salvation is contained in Jesus and conveyed by Jesus in verse 3. God's message is confirmed. The gospel message authenticated. How? With signs and wonders. Various miracles. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. And look what it says. According to his own will. Signs are those miracles given by God through Jesus or the other apostles that confirm the message of the gospel. A careful reading of John's gospel will show you that the miracles that Jesus is is doing, he's not doing it just to show off. He's not going to go, dudes, let me just show you something really cool. watch how I can take just a few loaves and a few fish and feed everybody who's here. Or at the wedding, dude, watch this. I'm going to take a great big pitcher of water and turn it into the best wine you've ever had. (laughs) That's awesome. He's not doing the, the, the miracles and the signs to just simply have a good time. Wonders were those miracles which were intended to arouse amazement from the watching. Like the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11 where Jesus is standing and you've heard me say this over and over again. Jesus is standing at the tomb of Lazarus and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life and he that believeth in me even if he were dead yet shall he live and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And Remember he says, Lazarus come forth and the And Lazarus hops out like it's it's like zombie apocalypse. And he comes out. And they unwrap him. And all of the crowds look on and they say, This is unbelievable. The signs and the wonders were to convince the Jew. By the way, pause for a moment. Did the signs and wonders, for the most part, convince the Jew? The answer is no. Remember, they kept asking. Give us another one. Give us another one. Give us another one. Give us another one. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you anyone except the one of Jonah. That just like Jonah was in the belly of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in in the earth. In 1 Corinthians one twenty two, Paul says the Jews require a sign. The miracles were in part to convince the Gentiles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit were to confirm the message to everyone listening, both believer and unbeliever, through the Christian and the gifts of the holy spirit were those special unctions and enablements given to men and women to speak and act in a in a way that was beyond their human capabilities It was was what would cause people to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. William MacDonald writes, they are the sovereign gifts of God. They can't be demanded by men or claimed in answer to prayer because God never promised them to, to everyone. And so the writer says, you can slip, but don't slip. Appreciate the gospel. Stay close to Jesus. We've had a lot of things in the news about Ebola. I happen to... Uh, i going to be talking to some of my friends at the Billy Graham Association tomorrow. And many of you know that two of the medical workers who contracted the Ebola virus um, were working with Samaritan's Purse. Imagine a person has Ebola, or something less severe, but still stable. Imagine a cure is offered. You have Ebola. Now tell me again what's happening. Your internal organs are starting to liquefy. And unless we treat you, you're going to die. But we have an effective treatment that will save your life. I think I want a different treatment. See, you're laughing. You're, they, yeah, that's the right thing to do. You're going to hell. I don't want to go to hell. Then accept Christ as your Savior. I don't want to accept Christ as my Savior. What do you want to do? I want to live my life apart from Christ and apart from the gospel. I want to continue in my sin. D.L. Moody wrote, looking at the wound of sin will never save anyone. What we have to look at is the remedy. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus has brought the truth. Jesus has brought himself. Jesus has become the gospel. Jesus is salvation. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, told Timothy, But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought... Life and brought immortality by the gospel. The gospel has brought light, immortality, life, abolished death because Jesus has shown up. And so the writer of Hebrews is not going to give up. Not in chapter 2, verse 4. For the skeptic and the critic and the person who still insists that they want a religious option that doesn't include Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is going to continue to make the best arguments that he can and provide the best exhortations that he can so that people will turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what an amazing passage of Scripture. And Lord, what a wonderful warning Lord, we know that we see warnings all the time. Slow down. Don't touch that electrical wire. Lord, when we see the skull and the crossbones and the words poison written on the bottle, we know that probably drinking, it's a bad idea. So Lord, what is it about the warnings in the Bible that we feel sometimes obligated to ignore, resist, and reject? But Lord, we pray, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would draw us to yourself. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit we would be reminded of what it means to know you and love you and draw close to you in the person of Jesus and to meditate on the wonderful, gracious, powerful provision that's been made to us in the person of Jesus and that we can enjoy our salvation. And so again, Lord, We commit these things to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.